Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. This podcast highlights the challenges that black men often face with regards to re-entry and removing the stigma of incarceration. Flores Forbes is the Associate Vice President for Strategic Policy and Program Implementation at Columbia University, a highly experienced urban planner and formerly incarcerated member of the Black Panther Party. This is his story. So Mr. Forbes, thank you for joining us. Let's start by hearing a little bit more about you and what you do. Okay, I'm originally from, I was born in Hawaii, grew up in California. I'm a Navy brat, my father was in the Navy. So I grew up in San Diego, California. During a time when there was a lot of civil rights activism going on in the South, but in California, there was very little going on. The biggest problem we had was police brutality. You know, San Diego was a Navy town, you know, or Navy town, Marine town, that sort of thing. So there were a lot of African Americans there, who's uh, people who had been in the Navy or in the Marine Corps, and you know, like I said, I I, I can't explain the conditions in terms of why. It was like this, but there was a really repressive police presence in the African-American community in San Diego. And later on, I realized that's the same, it's all its way all over California. That's what it was like. So, you know, when I was like 12 years old, I got, I call it, I got kidnapped by the police. I was out riding my, uh, my little Stingray bike and they pulled me over put my bike in the trunk and took me, put me in the back seat and took me like away somewhere to be identified by a white couple to see if I was the one who had snatched her purse. At 12 years old? 12 years old, yeah. And then when I was 14, I was playing, I was a football, played football and I was working out one evening up at the uh, local high school. You know, and it's kind of, there's irony in it, it's kind of funny in a certain way because there was a big incident down the street you know, it was like a, a, a big party going on, and, and so the people there started throwing rocks at the police and stuff like that. I'm not sure why. And I was running around this track, and then all of a sudden there was a spotlight that started following me. I mean, did they think I was one of the people who had been over at the, uh, the party, you know, and it was running from them? So about 20 police, you know, converged on this uh, football field, and they beat me up. Luckily, the only black policeman that was actually in San Diego at the time was there. And I actually went to school. Me and his son went to the same school. So he kind of, you know, rescued me. So it was after that where I started to realize that there's really something wrong going on here. So, and my brother was in college. He was at UCLA. And he was bringing back books and stuff like, you know, Wretched of the Earth, Autobiography from Malcolm X, uh, you know, the crisis of the, of the uh, Negro intellectual, stuff like that. And he started bringing back these Black Panther newspapers also. And I, I think I, I remember seeing the Panthers going to lobby at Sacramento against the Mulford Act, which was the bill that was being put forth to stop them from carrying loaded weapons in public because they were patrolling the police. So that was the thing that we heard about, you know, the patrol and the police were like, so. So I kind of uh, felt like, you know, in order for me to survive, I, you know, I have to fight back. 
have to do something. So I was 16, I joined the Black Panther Party. That was all I did for like the next 10 years. And I, you know, rose up through the ranks. I worked with all of the major people there, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Elaine Brown, and, and David Hilliard, and you know, quite a few others. And I was eventually recruited into the, to, to the military arm of the Black Panther Party. And um, so I guess around in 77, Huey Newton, he was in exile in Cuba. Because he had fled because he had been charged with murder. So me and some of my other colleagues, and I was actually the, the ringleader of that, you know, we said, oh, well, look, you know, let's, you know, let's go kill the witness so that, you know, he won't have to worry about going to trial. And so we set up an operation and we went to go kill the witness and it didn't work out. One of the people panicked. One of the guys got killed. I got shot. I got wounded. And I was able to get away eventually and I became a fugitive for like the next three years. And I turned myself in around 1980 and was convicted of felony murder uh, with an arming and use clause, because I you know, used a gun in, in California. And I got sentenced to eight years. Luckily I had a good lawyer. You know, that, was, that made all the difference. I went to prison, I was in Soledad State Prison and in San Quentin. And went to college while I, I had been going to college before. I, mean, I went to college while I was still in prison, and they had Pell Grants then. And worked towards my BA, and then I had like two semesters to do when I got out. And um, so then I went to San Francisco State University. And I, um, you know, wanted to be an urban planner. I, I thought urban planning was something that would kind of help me to continue to do what I w was doing in terms of helping, you know, black people work out all the issues in the society. And I, and I thought that economics was a major uh, piece of that, especially urban planning. And, you know, it was kind of daunting because I knew that there were very few black people in the field of urban planning. You know, and I didn't know this when I applied to NYU. Actually, one of the major urban planners, black urban planners, was a guy named uh, Robert C. Weaver, who was affiliated with the uh, Wagner School. So I, actually, I came here before it was a Wagner School. It was a graduate school of public uh, administration. And I found a great home. You know, it was, a, it was a good place to kind of land. And I was able to uh, go to school full time. I got a full ride. They had something called a Patricia Roberts Harris Fellowship that paid full tuition and a stipend and that sort of thing. And, you know, so I was able to go full time and finish my degree by 89 and then come out into the, to the world. And I, you know, like, like Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan when they get in the ring until they get hit. Well, that's what happens, you know. You, you get out there and you realize that being formally incarcerated is not a, um, it, it's, it's interesting how it's the only thing we're asked to self-disclose on, on a job application. It's usually apparent what your gender is or what your race might be. You can uh, say you're mixed race or you're, you know, you're white or black, that sort of thing. But to be asked, have you been convicted of a felony or have you ever, that sort of thing, is pretty traumatizing. But luckily, I was able to get a job through some of the uh, professors at NYU. And I um, got on to the, to the workforce and, and, and uh, with the exception of maybe one or two 
positions I never had to apply for another job. You know, because I think what happens is, you know, I started developing this network and a good reputation. And I was, you know, focusing in the area of community development. And it was a pretty, you know, robust industry in New York City at the time. Wound up working at a, a think tank called Interface, which is right over here on, like, Broadway. And what, 666 <laughs> Broadway. And, you know, and I started working for uh, uh, foundations. I was in a uh, demonstration project that certain the foundation was doing in terms of revitalizing the South Bronx. But you know, as an urban planner, you need to get into the public sector. And I was a consultant with the Urban Development Corporation, which was the, uh, the New York State kind of economic development entity. I think it's Empire State Development Corporation now today. And they wanted me to come there, you know, as this consultant. But I, I remember seeing the application, and I remember seeing the box, and this was like a few years out, and it really got to me. I'm like, wow, you know what I mean? They're gonna do a background check? And so I, I kind of maybe felt I wasn't ready at the time, but what, what I do remember distinctly is how it felt every time I saw that box. And so I just wonder about everybody else when they're going through the same sort of thing. And I think I had more opportunities than most people. So, you know, I went through that and, and, and um, kept working and eventually got recruited. Uh, a colleague who was in, uh, we were in graduate school together. He was the like, budget director for the Manhattan Borough President's Office. And he said, we're doing this big project in Harlem called the Frederick Douglass Boulevard Initiative. And we need a planner to help come in and, and, and lead this effort. See, Virginia Fields was probably one of the most enlightened politicians I'd ever met. You know, she marched with Martin Luther King and stuff, but then she also had run an alternative to incarceration program when she was a social worker. So she was basically, look, you know, you're qualified. I'm, you know, I want, I want to give you a second chance. That's the first time I heard somebody say that. I want to give you a second chance. And so, you know, I applied, got the job, and it was at that point that I really felt that I had removed the external stigma which I think basically is not being able to, to, to be honest on checking the box, you know, and it affects you so much in terms of, of, of what you're trying to do. So you steer clear of all those different types of, of um, primary labor force, professional jobs, stuff with benefits and that sort of thing, and as opposed to being in the secondary labor market where, you know, you're not really doing that well. And then I um, was recruited again to this real estate company that was in Harlem, Abyssinian Development Corporation. They were working on all these big projects up there, and you know, and so they lured me away from the city. Because I met these these right these two writers, a guy named David Henderson, uh, who wrote a book called "Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky" by Jimi Hendrix, and this other guy named Calvin Herton, who was also a uh, a writer. And so I told them my story, and they said, you know, man, you should tell your story. And then I realized that as I was trying to become more successful, I realized I had like 18 years of experience that I couldn't put on a resume. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? So you write a book that kind of puts all of this into perspective about, you know, the experiences in the Black Panther Party were very educational because, you know, Books were really big. We had this huge reading list, and 
I mean, even in the military arm, you had to read stuff. And it wasn't necessarily uh, books about weapons, but, you know, you read about theory, you know, uh, Che Guevara and uh, Sun Tzu, uh, The Art of War, this book called The Book of Five Rings, Mayamoto Masashi. And these were books that were being used in business schools in terms of dealing with strategy and stuff like that. So, you know, I put the book together. I got an agent, and I shopped it, and I got a, got a book deal. And so I got I published it, and it came out in, like, 2006. And so that was kind of this breakthrough. I'm like, okay, well, you know, if, if you know, because, you know, you look at someone's resume, you have this gap. What, what do I say? You can't say it on your resume, you know, and, and they aren't structured to to really help someone who was formerly incarcerated. Because as soon as you, you know, you read them, I mean, I hire people today and I'm looking at them and I see this gap. And so I will, you know, when I'm interviewing them, I'll say, you know, well, what happened here? And you get some interesting answers, but you know, I haven't had anybody say, well, you know, I was in, I was in the penitentiary or something like that, you know, not yet anyway. And so, you know, I, I, I was working at uh, Abyssinian Development Corporation, and um, you know, my book was out, and I was at a, a book event. And this, this woman I worked with before, she came up, uh, her name is Maxine Griffith, and she's an executive vice president at Columbia University, and she comes over, she says, hey, you know, how you doing? Boom, she, you know, bought a book and stuff. And then she reached out to me, and she says, you know, hey, you, you got you know, time for lunch. So, so we had lunch. And then at that lunch, she said, look, you know, we're doing this big expansion plan at Columbia. We could use someone like you. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I got the job. So I've been there like the last 10 years. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Who I am. And I think what's so compelling about your story of reentry is that you detail it in your most recent book, entitled Invisible Men, A Contemporary Slave Narrative in the Era of Mass Incarceration. Can you talk a little bit about the thought behind that title? I took this class in prison called Masterpieces of American Literature. And one of the novels that was in the reading list was Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. So, you know, when you're in prison, you know, you read. But, you know, I had so much time on my hands, I read it twice. I mean, this was really fascinating book and we also had to keep a journal so you had to write down what it is you thought about the book that sort of thing and I still have that journal today I was working on a different project writing project I was thinking about something like up up from slavery because I was starting to associate the 13th amendment slavery the punishment clause and that sort of thing and I was going to do something where I, I wanted to interview maybe 30 formerly incarcerated black men who had been out of prison 5, 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. You know, I'd met people, and I'd known some people, and there were some, you know, like there were celebrities, like people like Charles Dutton, this guy Jeff Henderson, the celebrity chef out in Las Vegas, Nathan McCall, and there's probably, probably a few others, right? So I, I realized that it's very possible that these guys may not really want to talk about this and get involved in this. So I, then I started dealing with it on my on my own, writing, you know, kind of my own story. And it, but it still was working with that title, uh, Up From Slavery. And then I read The um, Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And I realized that it's a story about a guy who goes to prison, he gets out, and he reinvents himself. 
he went into prison, he was Edmond Dantes when he got out, you know, and he had found this treasure that the, one of the guys in prison helped him get put together. And he's like, I'm, you know, Count of Monte Cristo. So that made me start thinking about, wait a minute, I actually had to reinvent myself, but I didn't change my name. But then I also realized that for maybe a good portion of the time I was out, I was hiding. You're only going for jobs where maybe there is no box or they don't do a background check. And at one time it was pretty easy to figure out which jobs those were, right? So I thought to myself, I said, well, I wonder who else went, went through this. And then I realized that given the, the, the situation I was in, you know, in many instances, I'm the only black person in the room still. So I'm like, well, how many people are formerly incarcerated? You know, not just at an Ivy League institution, but we're a, you know, a policy planner for the city of New York, that kind of thing. So I, I, I pretty much surmised that, you know, if I was hiding, so maybe it was everybody else at one point, especially black men. And I finally got to the point of, of saying instead of invisible man I said okay well let me do this I'm doing this in the first person but I'm only outing myself I mean I've already you know pretty much declared that but still I saw it as that so I said well invisible men because I'm pretty sure that I'm talking about a lot of other people and I've kind of pretty much confirmed that talked to other formerly incarcerated people and and mostly black men, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was hiding and stuff like that too. But you're doing it in plain sight, you know. So you're not covering your face up or staying indoors or something like that, but you are trying to hide who you actually are, you know, in terms of your identity, your experience, and stuff like that. The subtitle, the Contemporary Slave Narrative, actually came from also, I was started reading I was reading the Constitution. We have Constitution Day or a month at Columbia. So I'm you know, I got the Constitution, I'm reading it and I see the, the punishment clause. I'm like, what? You know, and I hadn't even realized that. That, you know, that this was something that was inserted in eighteen sixty five. It was kinda like a loophole. Slavery's abolished throughout the land, except if you've been convicted of a crime. And, you know, I never thought about that, you know, but I realized that when I was in prison, I couldn't even sign my own Pell Grant check. The state had to do it as a power of attorney, you know. I realized, okay, and then I realized that's why we have numbers. They give you a number because you, know, you no longer have your legal name. So most people didn't delve that deeply into it, but I didn't, didn't think about it until I started, you know, doing that. So I also realized you were invisible there, too. You know, not just physically, you're upstate somewhere like that but I guess you can say legally you're also uh, invisible you know you become this number you know I read some of the you know Frederick Douglass stuff and Booker T Washington and they, they wrote these slave narratives and I said okay well let me call it the contemporary slave narrative because I was a slave when I was in prison so now I'm writing about it so that's kind of the genesis of the, the title. And there's clearly a link between racism and incarceration. What are your thoughts on the systemic injustices that black and brown individuals face? It's a little deeper than just the racism and injustice and that sort of thing. I, I basically say that the, the advent of you know, white supremacy was the real beginning of the 
the underpinnings of what would become mass incarceration. Because you remember, until 1865, there were a couple of prisons. You know, there was a prison in Auburn. I think there was one in Pennsylvania. Maybe a few other places. Because you remember, they would put you in a stock and have you all locked up. If you were a witch, they'd burn you, you know. But most black people were, were slaves. So they were in this type of carceral state, but it was an economic development entity. Okay, they were part of the cotton industry, that sort of thing. And really cheap cotton. That's why the, the South became this big, big player in the world uh, uh, production process with regards to cotton and textiles and stuff like that. And that ended at the you know when the civil war started you know and also the other stuff that i've you know been looking at is with regards to thomas jefferson thomas jefferson is the first person that actually used the punishment clause he writes about it in 1784 he was writing some drafting some documents on for the western territories and he had in there that slavery will only exist if you commit a crime now i thought he did it because he was worried about competition because he was a slave owner, right? Or that the other slavers felt the same way. You know, we can't let these guys get in on our, our thing here. You know, I didn't think much of it. And then as I read more about even in the notes in Virginia, you know, people say he talked about how, how bad uh, black people smelled and how vicious they were. We have to protect our women from them because, you know, they're savages, right? But he also was writing about, or thinking about, prison and slavery. Because he had a nail factory on Monticello. And he basically was trying to look at what's, what's the difference, what, you know, how, how does this work, prisons and slaves? Because they were, there's, these are humans that are controlled by other humans, you know, with violence. The threat of violence is, is, is always there. And so I realized the, the historical say the, the birth of what you might consider white supremacy was in the constitution okay with three-fifths of a man and, and that sort of thing right and that was for legislative reasons so when it, it's ratified in 1865 what happens well this loophole creates convict leasing okay so that many of the former slaves are commit a crime and and their crimes are like poof. I mean you know you're talking about the penal code then I mean it was if you looked at a if you looked at a white woman you could get arrested if you if you did anything if you if you bumped into a white man on the street didn't get off the curb and so these were very small things and we went all the way down to not being able to own property testify in courts do contracts or anything like that right this is what was called the Black Codes that came out in the South during Reconstruction. And then that evolved into Jim Crow, and then you kind of look at you know segregation and people being confined in urban centers, that kind of thing. So, so I think that it, 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 it evolves out of something a little deeper than just today, or oh, we got mass incarceration. Well, you know, there's more to it than just that. It's, it's not just with, 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 with the racism and that sort of thing. Basically, the slave industry or the prison industrial complex or whatever is constitutionally confirmed. 
So basically what happened is in terms of how the system is set up, it was basically a, you know, it's, it's still slavery, uh, it's punishment, and it continues to be punishment. And probably it's much more onerous once you walk out the door. I mean, you, you know, you kind of think that, you know, hey, I'm over, you know, this, I'm, I'm out of here, right? And you walk out the door and it's like, God damn. You know, I didn't realize it was going to be this, not just this difficult, you didn't realize that, you know, you had the scarlet letter, something like that, that was there, you know, and it follows you. You know, you you know, like you can, you know, I know there are people who are looking at restorative rights. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a judge who I work with, he's had this program, he says, well, I'm going to, you know, get you to do this paper. And I said, man, I don't need it. I said, I can vote, you know. I got a mortgage. I mean, I stuff, man. What, what, what am I going to do now? You know what I mean? If someone asked me, was I ever in prison? I'm like, yeah, sure. I was there. It's not, it's not that it's not that big of an issue. It's that it's something that is with you for the rest of your life. But so is being a slave. So I think that there's no separation today. The 13th amendment it's, it's, it's a living letter. It's still there. It goes deeper than just the, you know, racism, discrimination against, I say, in particular, black people. You touched on a lot of points, mainly where you ended up and how you are now in terms of talking about your experiences being formerly incarcerated. And, you know, with respect to that, many would actually consider that a success story for you to have this trajectory, but you've even said yourself that not many have these opportunities. I'd love you to talk specifically about just that process of reentry for you. What were the supports and some of the challenges that you faced? And how did you leverage them? You know, the three things, I didn't know about them at the time. There's a uh, sociologist at Harvard, Bruce Western, he writes about this. Um, and he basically was saying that, you know, especially if you're a black man, he says, so difficult to get back into society, even if you're not formally incarcerated. So he was like saying, okay, well, what are the three things that you would actually need? So you need the your education and your skills, or, you know, whether it's professional trade or something of, of that sort. And then the second one is you need a network. You need a social network that Usually, you don't have that kind of access. In prison, you have a criminal network, okay, that helps you navigate the system. When you come out of into society, usually, what your network—if you—if you were just a regular person, well, man, you went to college. Your network would be your college, college classmates, professors, and then it becomes your employers and that sort of thing, or maybe your church or political affiliations. So, you know, those, that's something that you need to have. And I was able to develop a network. So that network is really, really important. And that leads you to this, to the third thing, was in terms of removing the stigma. And it's actually, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know about the, the, the internal one. The first one was, you know, being able to get a job and check yes on the box. I think that's the, the, the really big thing. And, you know, the work you have to do internally I remember I was at a, uh, I was in a meeting one day and I was sitting around this conversation and this woman looked, she looked at me and she said, she said, why are you looking at me like that? And this was like, you know, out loud and stuff. I'm like, wow, what's this mean? You know? And then years, a few years later, 
my wife said the same thing to me. Well, you know, you give me, you give me that look. I said, well, what look? She said, she calls it the killer look, right? But I said, well, what do you mean? I said, so I look in the mirror and I can't see it. I realize, okay, there's something that happens even after you've worked your way through all this stuff, got a good job and stuff like that, whatever, you know, or whatever it is you're doing, that if you don't do the work, it's going to stay with you. And, you know, it's the, the internal stigma, which is you. So I went to go see a psychologist. He just kind of sat there and listened. You know, I told him, I told him everything. I kept asking him, you can't tell anybody about this, right? I mean, the whole, you know, the, the, the internal aspect of removing the stigma was something that, you know, I kind of like, it's like self-discovery, but I, you know, kind of worked my way through it. Um, it was probably the last stuff I actually started writing about because, you know, you're really opening up, you know. But I realized that when you talk to other formerly incarcerated people about seeing a psychologist, they're like, man, I don't need to do that. You know, and I can look at most of them and tell you do need to. So I think that those are some of the the, the, the the major pieces that you have to work on. And that I had the, you know, I mean, the luxury of actually looking back and saying, okay, I did, you, you're kind of checking off the box. I did this, I did this, I did this. Is it a seamless transition? It wasn't for me. So I don't know what it may be like for, for, for others. And we definitely can't generalize for everyone, but I think that those key points can really be useful for anyone that is going through the process of reentry. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what we can do at the systems level. So we spoke about individuals, but what can governments do? What can advocates do in terms of actually helping force the conversation for adequate reentry funding, resources? What can be done? Well, I, mean, I think the first thing is is to really look at what the criminal justice system is or the prison industrial complex, whatever. The fact that you have a prison industrial complex and no reentry industrial complex ought to tell you something. I mean, the investment is, is, is like, the investment is only in confinement. You know, sure, I hear people saying, well, we're, we're looking at doing programs for reentry. Well, it's for every dollar that you're putting into that, how much actually goes to some organization that's providing those services? They were going to provide reentry services, but none of it's earmarked for the actual person. So I, I, I think what has to happen is, and this can be on the um, you know philanthropic side in terms of a demonstration or the state, but I the state I doubt it because like I told you before, the state needs the prison industrial complex because they make money off of that, you know. I, I think what needs to happen is I think the Vera Institute has an average cost of like $32,000 to keep somebody incarcerated. It's across the board, federal, state, and city. To have some that amount connected to someone who gets when they get out for up to five years and have it cover those areas so that you can get a, you know, help you get training, um, something to sustain you. Maybe you get a Section 8 voucher or something like that, yeah. And then after five years, you know, you should either, you should have a job. I mean, the research says that if you're out for five years, you know, you're probably not going to go back. So 
at the end of that five years, that, that ends. And what happens? Well, if you have a job, what are you doing? You're paying taxes. You become a consumer. You're contributing to the gross domestic product. Whatever was spent on that end, in terms of you, if your reentry, the state is going to get that back. I hear people saying, well, we got to save money. Let's do something to reduce mass incarceration and recidivism rate. They say it at the same time. Let's reduce mass incarceration and recidivism rate, but we're not going to put a dime in the reentry. Not a real dime. And like I said, I was lucky. These things help work for me. They should be able to work for everybody else. But, you know, you have to meet me halfway. You know, I, you know, I need for the hiring managers to see the box that I check yes on the box and say, well, you know what, you are the best qualified person for the job, and we're going we're gonna to hire you. And I don't think the state or the Fed, whoever you want to look at, is even close to dealing with that because the incentive is for you to recidivate. That opportunity needs to be there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the focus to close Rikers. Do you have any thoughts on that? <clears throat> Being from California and coming here and not being encumbered by the criminal justice system. I'm, I have uh, a real outside view of the whole issue of closed rankers. Now also being an urban planner and a former land use planner in the city, it's more than just a criminal justice issue. It's a land use issue in New York City in a place that has scarce land. I mean, you know, they, it, you know, they make land. You know what I mean? They have a lot of landfill on the uh, west, the west side, and stuff like that. And so, so what happens is, you know, it's like a park, right? If you, um, if if NYU wanted to, basically make Washington Square Park part of their campus, and said so we want to go through the state legislature to demap this as a, mar- a park, they will have to find parkland somewhere else of the same size okay when you look at say Rikers I saw something they said they want to turn it into a landing strip something like that and there's some other stuff right it still has to go through what's called a uniform land use review procedure the ULERP okay which is what you do when you want to change something okay this is a public facility and you want to relocate this public facility but you're going to leave this land that's why you have all these real estate developers looking at that. Just like when they were talking about the state of California was in debt, they were talking about selling San Quentin. That's the most valuable real estate in California because it's right there in Marin County, one of the wealthiest counties in the country. Okay, So it becomes something other than just that. But then the problem becomes, when is somebody going to say something about reentry? Okay, of the, I think it's 8,000 people who are at any one time that are incarcerated there, maybe 6,000 are still waiting for trial and they can't make bail. But also if they came out, what happens? You know, so, so it becomes this really difficult issue of dealing with land. And so they're saying we're gonna do a, um, a feasibility study, find five different locations in five different boroughs to locate people. Still, I don't hear anybody saying we're going to reduce that population. I assume you have to build the stuff somewhere else. 
okay, and you're going to relocate. But still, you're not doing anything. You're just moving a prisoner from one location to another. And I see my, even though I'm formerly incarcerated, I see myself as an outside observer because I'm looking at it from a different perspective. You know, it's an admirable idea. I, I know the people who are involved in the campaign. I, hey, this is, this is fabulous. But I tell them what I think, you know, in terms of that. Closing down a prison, I think is a great thing. But if you don't change the nature, I mean, if you don't change the actual criminal justice system, you know, you're just moving one issue over to another location because the same conditions will probably exist unless you're going to, you know, you're going to deal with it. Problem, like I said, goes way back to Thomas Jefferson sitting around trying to figure out what's the similarities between prisons and slaves in his nail factory. But it, it deals with the control of human beings. You know, you're not going to be over here in a big house. We're going to put you over here in a smaller house. You know, but we're still going to be focusing on the control. And with that, Mr. Forbes, I do want to sincerely thank you for joining us today, for lending your expertise, and especially sharing your story as well as your insight on how we can not only aid the conversation on prison reform, but really start talking about reentry and specific things that we can do. So thank you. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Mr. Flores Forbes, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our resources, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together.